0: Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity, and in our podcasts we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages.
1: for joining us for this EHS podcast. I'm your host, Angela Platt. I'm a third-year PhD student at Royal Holloway investigating how love is valued and experienced in religious families of old descent in the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm here with Dr. Chris Langley and Dr. Michelle Brock. Chris Langley is Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at Newman University in Birmingham, his research explores the religious and social history of early modern Scotland. He is the author of Worship, Civil War and Community, 1638-1660, and Cultures of Care, Domestic Welfare, Discipline and the Church of Scotland, 1600-1689. He is editor of the National Covenant in Scotland, and he is the co-investigator of the NEH-funded project Mapping the Scottish Reformation and his co-investigator michelle brock is associate professor of history at w and l university virginia her research explores the history of religion and the supernatural in early modern scotland her publications include satan and the scots the devil and post reformation scotland 1560 to 1700 and she co-edited knowing demons knowing spirits in the early modern period so I'm here today with Chris and Mickey welcome thank you for joining us thank you for having us
0: yeah thanks Angela
1: yeah of course and and we're here to discuss the project they're currently working on um mapping the Scottish Reformation so Chris and Mickey what can you tell us about this project
0: well if I if I kick off and then I'll see what what Mickey thinks um I guess this is the a uh, project that's trying to trace the history of clergymen and their families in early modern Scotland and so many historians of of medieval and early modern worlds come across these local religious leaders in their work and and finding detailed and glanceable info on these on these people is incredibly difficult so what we wanted to do was create a system that would provide kind of an intro into a cleric's life but also, that could serve as a guide to some of the really complex manuscript material that's that's closed up um, in, in archives across Scotland. Um, so that's really what we were thinking about um, trying to achieve with with this project.
2: Yeah, and just to add on to that. Um... You know, the Scottish clergy were, as any folks sort of working in this area know, the really pivotal figures around which religious change happened, around which communities coalesced. And, and you know, these central figures um, are a group that we care a lot about in early modern Scottish history, but yet in some ways we don't know a lot about them as a group. And so in some ways, mapping the Scottish Reformation is meant, as as Chris was saying, to serve as sort of a digital prosopography of this group, to understand these snapshots of their careers, but also how they worked as sort of a cohesive and developing and indeed quite messy profession um, in the period between the Scottish Reformation and 1560 um, through to the revolution in, in 1689.
1: So you've both talked about this database um, offering help with difficulties accessing some of these primary sources, but I'm, I was wondering: is this specifically what inspired this project, or was there something else that inspired you both to begin doing this particular project? Well,
2: I'm happy to to jump off with this one. Um, for me. The conversation between Chris and I about the need for this sort of um, easily accessible, searchable database um, and mapping of the Scottish clergy came because I was working, I am still working on the career of a minister um, in air who was there for 44 years. And as I've been working on his career, I sort of wondered in the early phases of this project, how typical was that? right? How typical was it to stay in the same parish for over four decades? Um, were more peop- were most people more mobile than that, right? What what did the sort of broader trajectory of clerical careers look like? And I realized there was no way for me to answer that question, right? I have no, in any sort of efficient manner. I can't say, was he the longest serving, second longest serving, whatever. We just didn't really have um, a way to sort of look through the information about the careers of individual ministers in an efficient and collective manner. So for me, it was really born of questions in my own research, actually, um, as well as some errors found in the source that most um, scholars currently use for these types of questions, which is Hugh Scott's Fasty, um, which is a calendar of all the ministers in Scotland, a remarkable resource, but one that's not really rooted in the manuscript material and sometimes has its challenges. So... Just for me, I think I brought these things up to Chris actually, and said, "You know, I don't know how to answer these things. I'm not sure I trust this source. What what else can be done?"
0: Yeah, so my experience is incredibly is incredibly similar to that, and so in in many respects, when I'm working on um, religious identities and cultures in in 16th and 17th century Scotland or even beyond that, I'm always trying to work out the extent to which a minister's experience was representative of of something bigger. And there's always that danger when you're, when you're writing about religious cultures and religious life, that you're talking about something that's exceptional. And so trying to understand or get some sense of, of what the normative experience of the cleric was in this period. um, That's, that's a really essential part of, of our work. And up until now, it, would really have taken years of trawling through archival material across Scotland to get a sense of oh is this normal for someone to do is this a is this a regular pattern that I'm seeing so the only way we can do that is is by extracting really significant bits of data Um, and, and that's kind of what what's what's driving me at least
1: so Chris on what you were just saying regarding the data and the database uh, what would you say is the scope of this project and maybe this is a two-part question uh, what's the scope of the project and what types of data d- will people be able to find in this database what specifically are you including
0: well that, that's a nice double question and I, I, yeah. if I take myself part, and then I think Mickey will be better placed for the for the second one so for the scope I guess there's two answers to that. The first one is the scope of the completed project is to extend data from across Scotland's 1100 or so parishes across the period, as Mickey said, 1560 uh, of the Reformation Parliament to the Glorious Revolution in 1689. And, but more than that, we're not just tracing those the ministers within scotland itself one of the really important things that we're trying to do is to trace ministerial journeys or clerical journeys as we're calling them um across time and space within and without scotland so we have ministers going to to the modern day netherlands to france to to north america but also of course to to ireland or, or the northern parts of ireland um now the second part of the answer is that right now we're we're working on a pilot that really works on one area of Scotland that centers on on modern day edinburgh and within this there are around 100 120 parishes um but even within that sample there's a, around 1000 ministers for us to go through so as i was saying like the scale of this is huge Um, And to find each one of those references, we have to go through pages and pages of manuscript material, which, um, uh, as some of the listeners can imagine, and you can imagine, Angela, is um, stressful sometimes.
2: (laughs) Yes, uh, the trolling through manuscript material. uh, I think sometimes Chris and I will joke about that as sort of the unsexy part of this project, right, the really messy Um, work in trying to gather these various points of data that are going to eventually power um, this this database and answer the broader questions that that have been burning on our minds for a while. Um, We're looking in particular for certain markers in clerical careers um, that can be easily rendered as machine-readable data. That is to say, to take some of the qualitative character of a minister's trajectory and turn it into something that can be processed in a database and rendered visually. So for example, um, the two really big things that that we're looking at now, of course, are when did ministers start their tenure in a given parish? And when did ministers end that tenure? Or when were they transported to a different parish for whatever reason? So the, the sort of installation date has been really important as well as the end of a minister's career, which of course sometimes also ends in being deposed um, from from their position from from the clergy for for a whole range of of sort of uh, fascinating and often really revealing reasons that give us um, insight into sort of the texture of religious life and tension during the period. Um, We're also interested in things like clerical alma mater. So where were ministers educated? And one of the reasons I think this question is particularly important is because we're wanting to possibly look for patterns or or allow future researchers to look for patterns in the sort of connection between education in a given university and where the ministers ended up spending spending their careers and, and sort of Seeing what what can be pulled out from that, um, we're also recording some, as I say, qualitative data. So, what is the reason that a minister might have been suspended or deposed? Are there really sort of in, interesting and important breaks in their career? Um, and we're sort of in conversation about how to put that into a database. So, we have over twenty you know twenty categories that we're collecting data on. Um, but but I think those are really the most most important. And I don't know if Chris wants to add anything to that.
0: Well, that it, it's quite a list, and I'm, I'm always reminded of, of how much we're collecting. Um, and some of this data comes up more frequently than others. The, the only thing that I, I would add to, to what Mickey was saying, which has really surprised us, is how much information from these official ecclesiastical records are created by the Church of Scotland. How many times they reference not just the ministers themselves, but also their families yes. and their social networks. So we have a, a a growing data set now of information on clerical families, which is really revealing, but also challenges some of the ways that we're recording data on ministers in the first place. So this, th- this is a, a a growing project really, but um, a lot of those categories that Mickey mentioned um mm-hmm some of them we, we assumed would come out of the material and others we've been very surprised by in the process of of, of reading through the archival manuscripts.
2: Yeah I think initially for example I did not anticipate that so many ministers would be suspended from their parishes at given moments in their careers um, and often temporarily for, for a whole range of reasons usually sort of the, the violation of behavioral expectations for a man of the cloth, right? Um, But that we initially didn't have suspension as a category we were looking for. We were looking for, you know, people being deposed from their parish. But instead, there's so much rich material about these suspensions, which are often... Products Not of national ecclesiastical politics, but rather local debates and disputes happening within a given Presbyterian region. And I find that really fascinating as well. Um, and the clerical families. Yeah, that that's really important. So how many of these ministers had sons who went on uh, to to follow that same course. Um, how were their their wives and, and daughters involved in the sort of Scottish Kirk and, and the work that they were doing? That, that's that been really interesting. It does occasionally pose problems when you have three ministers with the same name in a line that <laughs> end up, occasionally in different parishes and, and you're not quite sure which one they are, but, but that's some of the things that
1: we've been sort of working on. Um, so, Mickey, you mentioned how trawling through the manuscript material, um, you said that's perhaps the, the least sexy parts of this project, <laughs> um, which I found really interesting because actually as a PhD student, um, I almost feel like trawling through the manuscript material, at least for my research, is almost the most sort of sexy part. Um, it's it's uh, There's something sort of visceral and, and wonderful about going to an archive and trawling through those different documents, knowing that maybe few people have used them before and so I was just wondering how do you envision that this project will impact that do you do you think that researchers and PhD students will still use archives and this will just be sort of the first port of call or how will those two experiences work together
2: um, well I'll answer the sort of first part and then let let Chris jump in I should say both I think I speak for both Chris and I that we're both manuscript junkies, right? We, we love going through these documents, as you say, um, discovering new things, looking for things that are, are sort of shiny and fascinating and new and personal. Um, The reason I say it's in some ways the unsexy work is really twofold. First, we're not actually doing this in the archive. We're doing this by and large um, just, you know, on our computers. Um, The National Records of Scotland was generous enough to give us um, access to some of these Presbyterian records that we're using as part of the, the NEH grant, the grant that we got from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, And, you know, looking at these on a screen is a little bit less exciting, um, but more to the point, um, there's a lot of inconsistency in the records, And you're just looking for these tiny points of, of data that, that will be entering in these, these Google Sheets that we're using to collect this information. So you'll be looking through a manuscript and you're going through 50 pages and the handwriting is sort of a mess and there's not um, marginalia that's particularly helpful and not really finding things. So I should say at times it's tremendously exciting, no doubt. Uh, I, I love working with these manuscripts. But at the same time, it is um, a bit of the nitty gritty where we're having to make complicated editorial decisions about the ways we might record this information and things like that. So, so that was my, my point about it being being sort of unsexy. But um, certainly, I don't think this database that we're building will ever replace the use of manuscripts. In fact, it's actually meant to enhance it. And I think um, I'll let Chris jump off with that if he if he wants to jump in and speak a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, for us, uh, manuscript junkie is is an, an interesting <laughs> phrase I've never heard before, but I think it that sums us up. And so, what we're what we're trying to do here is part of this isn't just about collecting that data and then and then visually kind of representing it for users, which we can talk about in, in a moment if you like. It's more about um, it, it's also about the fact that we are presenting this info. Um, as a as a finding aid, so the, uh, the, one of the really important parts of the of the data gathering for us has been something that we all take for granted, but in databases we we rarely think about, which is the the referencing for this stuff. Mm-hmm. So we want people to be able to go in to the to the database and through our visualization layers uh, and user interface, and to be able to. To not only manipulate that information, but also to see where we got it from, yeah. and that's a, that's a really essential part of of what we're doing. So, I mean, as Mickey said, the manuscript material is the is the heart uh, and, and the heartbeat of, of this project, and and it's interesting because it's it's kind of continuing to change what we do in terms of how we're responding to what's in there, what what can we get out. Um, but also, and I think this is, this is really worth underlining, you know, that especially now with the, you know, I, I, I seem to have been in this room endlessly this year, you know, like the rest of you guys, and I think having that finding aid um, and access to that material when maybe some archives and libraries aren't open yet or access to them is going to be limited, the fact that we create that finding aid means that we can, we can help people get access to some level of info from the archive but also even when things you know perhaps change to to more of what we're used to in the future um people further afield for example in the united states or canada can be thinking about you know using this as their sort of entry point um, and so we'd like a, a lot of things that i mean i think mickey and i both say this to our students about certain resources but as is a as is going to be a, a resource that you can use as a standalone product or uh, a sort of catalyst for you to do further work. So it's a starting point for other people. And and so that's, that's really how we envisage where, where manuscripts fit into this project.
2: Just as a quick add on, I find it really exciting to think that, you know, future PhD students, for example, or scholars or family historians, could have a question in mind, such as mine, right? What what was the average ministerial tenure? Or could have a question about suspensions in a given set of years. Could go to mapping the Scottish Reformation, to go to our user interface, find those ministers who had very long careers or those ministers who were deposed um, at a certain time period, and find the references that they can easily go to. So in some ways, it's going to breed more efficient use of the manuscripts. And I I do think actually there's an sort of equity and access issue here that we're keeping at the front of mind because universities in the states are particularly now really facing a, just a financial uh, I don't want to say crisis seems almost too soft of a word um, and and resources are limited for folks to be able to travel to get to the archives to do that work so, Providing a tool that can make the work that they can do there more efficient and allowing people more sort of access to that
1: to me is, is a really important priority. Uh, so, Chris, you mentioned um, talking about how this will be visually represented. Did you want to say a bit about that?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, so we're going to give listeners a, a sneak peek here of, of things we're working on at the moment. So, I mean, so our, our next um, funded part of this project. Um, it's funded by the Strathmartin Trust is about building the the visuals for this you know so at the moment if if um, listeners go on to to our blog um, which I guess will be in the notes for this show um, we, we we can sort of show you our, our, our work in progress visuals but what we want to do is to have a kind of accessible layer here and this kind of goes to what mickey was saying before about archives and this project so we know that reading these manuscripts is incredibly difficult so and and, and privilege a certain sort of person to be able to go in there and and quickly or even slowly go through that material so what we need to do is we're extracting the material these data points out of the manuscripts putting it into our database and that database then drives a, a visualization layer is, is how we think about it at the moment and that's effectively a, a series of 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 geo-reference maps where we plot each minister's um the, the stages in his career and uh, and, the, and the movements within his journey of his career and and really what we hope to do is if, we, this is the 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 low end version, if you like, that we sometimes talk about, but we want to create effectively a weather map to be able to to track religious change and to track the men and their families who who were at the forefront of this religious change. so in in short, what we want to do is for a user to be able to click into a certain part of Scotland or even on a certain individual and to then be able to see everywhere they went in their career and when they and they can click on any one of the nodes within that greater journey and be able to then see where we got that from the uh, from the manuscript material so and this is one of the things that I mean unless you're really immersed in the archive material which so many of us and, and the listeners are but we are sort of trying to make this a, a lot easier for people to see the big picture of what's going on in these manuscripts.
2: Yeah, I, I think Chris describes that that perfectly, perfectly. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're also interested in doing beyond just tracking the movement of the ministers is allowing users through our interva- interface to, for example, ask a chronologically bounded question. So, for example, show me all of the suspensions between... Uh, two given points, um, and then for that to be sort of visualized on our mapping layer, and or show me where all of the ministers who were educated um, in Edinburgh ended up, right? Those sorts of questions as well that are more place or event based um, are part of of what folks can access on on the interface. I should say, and I don't know if we've if we've said this quite yet. Currently, our focus is the Synod of, of the of Lothian and Tweeddale, um, all of the, the parishes within that. I think Chris mentioned that earlier. So, if you go on to our um, Twitter page, you can see which is at Mapping Scots Ref. Uh, I think is that am I getting that right, Chris?
0: That that's absolutely <laughs> yeah. right. You're obsessively checking it. You know it's right.
2: I yes, I am. Um, I do always retweet quite quickly the things that that you put up. <laughs> but I should say um, we've done some. Very basic, you know, geolocation uh, test maps that have, you know, showed some of these things. So where are some of the parishes where there were children of ministers? Where are some of the parishes in the synod of Lothian and Tweeddale where um, ministers were um, deposed? So if you go onto the Twitter account, you can see a sort of bit of that, a preview of, of what's to come in this sort of next phase as we build out this this pilot user interface for the Synod of Lothian and Tweeddale region.
1: Thanks, Mickey. And, and we will be sharing the website and Twitter handle again at the end of the podcast, if anybody wants to review that once they finish listening. Um, on to my next question. You've already spoken a bit about this, uh, about what you've generally discovered about clerical lives in Scotland with this project. I was wondering if you wanted to say anything else, or indeed, if there were any intriguing characters that you've discovered that you'd like to speak a bit about? on the podcast.
0: So Mickey, I think we might have some more specifics and then I can I can give the I can give the official and unofficial answer.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Um, one of the things that I think Chris will say more about is that the sort of careers of the ministers were far less linear far less bounded, far less straightforward than we had previously um, suspected. And I'll let let Chris say a a bit more about that. One of the things that has really surprised me, for example, is there were just an incredible amount of sort of would-be ministers going through their trials in a given parish or with a a presbytery um, and really making it to the point where they've completed all of the requirements and then never actually getting a position. And I, I think maybe some of our listeners um, will, will perhaps in, in sort of an awful way relate to that, that there is this sort of um, this sort of ministerial purgatory where these folks have fi- finished all of their requirements but don't yet have a permanent gig. And what did they do? Um, and they pop up in really interesting ways um, in In some of the records, and that's been quite surprising um, and interesting to me i didn't i didn't really expect that um, there of course I've found it fascinating some of the reasons that ministers were deposed and, and looking at some of those patterns um, you know you have uh, ministers like Richard Powery, who's a minister in Peebles um, or in the Presbytery of Peebles, who you know is deposed in sixteen forty nine for marrying a local lord to an excommunicated. Quote unquote, papist, as they put it in the records. Um, there are other cases of ministers uh, being suspended or deposed for fornication, for drunkenness, for getting into brawls, for slandering their fellow brethren. Um, and so, to me, that the sort of color of the ministerial careers and the reminder that these ministers were ordinary men in many respects, trying as well to meet. The dictates and expectations of reformed life right to to lead in such a way um, that that would uh, be a model for the rest of their community um, and certainly ministers were very much held to to account so imagine that accountability for leaders it 's a good idea um, <laughs> <yeah, so laughs> i 'll stop there
0: the minister's behaving badly thing is is always potentially interesting, and it keeps our sessions if you like on the manuscript material a little bit more lively um but i mean for some kind of inside baseball on on how projects like this work i mean mickey and i are on either side of the atlantic and so we communicate electronically obviously um uh, pretty much it was daily for a while right Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and and we um we have a document with kind of potential project avenues for ourselves you know, and, and so the amount of potential projects is huge. And, and for me, the one that, the specific example that's really surprised me, I, I mentioned this before, is is clerical families. And, but, but in particular, the, the absolute, um, the power and agency of clerical wives yes, yeah. hasn't really been shown in a Scottish context before. Recent work has shown it in, a, in an early modern English context. But these these women are entering this ostensibly male spaces of ecclesiastical power and um, showing incredible strength um but also ability to, to to know and to play that system and it's interesting and there's, there's, there's all sorts of ideas here about you know thinking about who their advocates are in those settings and and the network analysis of of you know who's signing these petitions with them and things like that and this is this is the the wives and daughters um of deceased ministers um who are approaching the ecclesiastical courts and asking for for their dues asking for the money that their father or their dead husband um paid out to to fix the manse for example so they they sort of have them on license and they expect that money back and it's one of the only cases uh, or any scenarios whereby there is huge amounts of, of of individual agency for women within these settings, and it's completely underappreciated. But beyond that, I think, in terms of you know intriguing things so far that we we found, I think for me the, the the major issue here is that we were expecting to see emerge out of these manuscripts a sort of archetypal ministerial experience. And um, at various points, we think we're doing this wrong because we're not finding it. But that's the point. Um, It's incredibly difficult to find that archetype or normative experience because there's a great deal of variation. So these ministers, for example, we thought they were going to be quite mobile. Um, They are, but their mobility is over a quite... um, regional kind of area so they tend to move within the presbytery within the jurisdiction rather than you know flying from edinburgh to to aberdeen say which only happens with a few superstar preachers um and it's it's really that thing of the fact we're we're trying to do a data-driven project with messy data as we always talk about kind of underlines the fact that you know the the clergy in the 16th and 17th century and the and the the being a cleric, it was absolutely not straightforward. There was no linear progression. And there's so much messy experience in there. It means that sometimes you can just get absolutely lost in this detail.
2: I was just going to add add to that because Chris said some things that are really jogging um, sort of inspiration in my mind that, that I wanted to point out. One of the things about the, the um, clerical wives that to me is so... Fascinating and is a really important key, uh, important part of why they have so much agency within these sort of settings and why they're able to really navigate their lives after the death of their husbands in such efficient ways and really um, sort of show this strength that Chris is referring to is because many of them, in part, are daughters of former ministers. And so I think, in fact, actually when we're talking about clerical lives, we're not just talking about a given sort of moment from when a man enters the ministry and when he dies. We're also talking about the lives of those individuals who are shaped by being associated with a minister. So their children um, and their daughters who from birth are sort of part of this sort of broader clerical path and and are often really important figures in that. So to me, that's really interesting. And also the sort of, Networks of one minister introducing his daughter to another, and what's the agency that women have in the sort of formation of those relationships? Um, to to me is sort of a fascinating thing that we've we've kind of been been thinking about uh, quite a lot. Um, I think the the other thing that I wanted to add to to something Chris was saying about the messiness of clerical careers. Also, there are ministers who are often involved in other professions before they end up in the sort of clerical pipeline. So for example, we're finding quite a lot of schoolmasters who go from that really pivotal role in a given parish to essentially applying for the position of minister and getting additional education um, over the course of, of that career. Some, And also some of those um, sort of would-be ministers who don't get an official post then become schoolmasters, right? So there's this really interesting sort of synchronicity between careers that we might have previously thought of as separate, right? Schoolmaster, minister, there are some ministers who were soldiers before they came, became uh, clerics. And so to me, that's quite fascinating the interplay between different careers um, that are actually much more interrelated than we might otherwise expect them to be.
0: Yeah. Just to add to that, you know, just to, to show listeners how, Absolutely cutting edge, the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast is. Um, at least in this respect, is that you know, we're working on this now. And that point Mickey just mentioned of ministers having this kind of pre-clerical life or a, a pre-ministerial life before they find their first op- official post. I mean, I'm going through records from around the East Lothian town of Haddington an hour before we, we're having this conversation. And I'm tripping over ministers who are who are household chaplains,
2: yes. some of whom
0: are being kind of parachuted into really well-known recusant Catholic families around Haddington and East Lothian. Um and they just keep coming up. And again, it's one of those questions of how do we how do we do justice to this complexity of this range of experience?
2: Which raises this question that, that Chris and I have talked about sort of endlessly. Okay, well, What actually does the clergy mean, right? Who counts as a member of the clergy? Are we counting these sort of um, cathedral clergy? Are we counting these sort of household chaplains? Are we counting schoolmasters who then become ministers or or people who are, you know, um, educated as ministers, but then become schoolmasters? So actually, we're rethinking even the way that we as historians have defined what what it means to be a member of the clergy? Um, we're trying to, of course, keep this somewhat bounded. We always have uh, colleagues who say, "Well, actually, you need to like you really need to look at readers, right? They're really critical figures in these parishes. Do they count as as ministers um, and readers for for listeners who who aren't quite familiar with that?" Um, really important role, particularly in really the first generation after the Scottish Reformation, um, when a lot when there weren't enough trained reformed clergy to, to fulfill the needs of every parish. Readers were often coming in, educated members of the community who would read from parts of Scripture. But then in other places, they essentially serve as ministers. So that the the category of reader itself is this very sort of squishy, fungible, movable career, which is why it was so position, which is why it was so important. But um, it raises lots of questions for us about who counts as part of the clergy. Uh, and, and we've I'm sure we will be talking about that endlessly as this project <laughs> progresses. That
1: sounds really interesting. It sounds like a potential future paper for the Ecclesiastical History Society, in my opinion. So I have one final question for you, and it's about the the value of this project. And to be fair, I feel like you've already you've already answered this. Um, it's self evident in everything that you've discussed today how immensely valuable this will be. But I was wondering if, just as a matter of summary, if each of you would like to say what why you feel this project will be quite valuable for those who are listening.
0: This is this is like a job interview question. I, I'm happy with this one. I, I I can try and kick this up, and then Mickey, you can, uh, fine, you can yeah. pick up anything that I I omit to to mention. So, w- why is mapping the Scottish Reformation important? Well, as, as you said, Angela, you know, we we try, we're always ready to justify this, right? And I think one of the problems with with modern uh, academic projects is we're we're scrambling for funding all the time, and we're constantly thinking of the the relevance of our projects so some of them come more naturally than others the the one for me that i think comes really top of the list at the moment that we're, we're increasingly realizing the value of is is having these aggregated resources that allow people to to add value to their work even when they can't get into the archive so this is one of those ultimate um remote working things whether whether we like this the situation or not and it allows us to to kind of share our expertise on on these sources but also to to give people access to those sources when when they might not be fortunate to do so but we also want to be able to stimulate those questions and so really the the, the value of this is in is in broadening the audience And and hopefully that that broadens the audience in some ways to the the raw material of Scottish ecclesiastical social history, and and that can can help a lot of people. But I also hope that it allows people to think about religious change, especially in in the sort of um, late medieval and, and reformation periods, in a much bigger way. Because we've tended to, I think the like Justin Champion used to talk about this a lot, and I, I think it's really worth reminding ourselves of his comments. Historians frequently shy away from big questions now um, because we're, we're reviewed on the detail. And I think what this allows us to do is to hook into very substantial questions without people having to be freaked out by that detail, because we're trying to do some of that legwork for them. So it's that kind of going from the micro to the to the macro, if you like, that that we feel really strongly about. Now, I don't know if I've done justice to that, you.
2: No, yeah. I mean, I was actually I, I had written down something tremendously similar. And so I'll just sort of piggyback on that. You know, I really do see this not as a resource that provides answers, but a resource that inspires questions and that empowers People to ask those questions. And and by by that, I mean, not just folks like Chris and I, who are sort of living and breathing 16th, 17th century Scottish history, but also non-specialists who um, find that a Scottish minister shows up in in you know, sort of the Netherlands or in, in the northern part of Ireland and is really relevant to their work. It's a place that they can go and start thinking really about Scotland's place in the wider world. Um, I think one of the, the real benefits of this project and particularly our thinking about including these visualization layers, this mapping component, is that it's going to provide sort of historians and scholars, genealogists, everyone, a way to think more carefully, more closely, but also more broadly about the interplay between local parishes and the needs and identities of those parishes, the regions that they are a part of and the influences and push and pull in those given regions. And also the sort of larger national and international context, right? Scottish clergymen, they were involved, yes, in local Scottish politics, national debates, and so forth, but they were also part of a transnational project of building a godly society, of, of spreading um, reformed theology, of implementing it in certain ways, and of course, that, in so doing, they were very much bound up in what was happening in their own worlds and in their own circles. So so for me, I think one of the real richness, uh, real rich parts of this project is its illumination of those local, regional, national and even global connections that have become so pivotal to how people in many fields think about the interconnected worlds of ministers and the religious change that that their lives help drive.
1: Thank you, Chris and Mickey. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm sure that if our listeners are anything like me, they are now ruminating upon how they might fit some research into Scottish clericalism, into their current research agenda, as it were. Before I let you go, were there any final thoughts that you wanted to share with our listeners? I do feel like I should really quickly just add, we have a just
2: an absolute sort of all-star advisory board um, of, of some of the really the most important Historians of early modern Scotland and the Scottish Reformation, folks like Jane Dawson, um, Julian Godair, Elizabeth Ewan, um, Michael Graham, Roger Mason has been really pivotal and involved. But we also have on our advisory board um, archivists, um, folks who are working at, in sort of metadata and that has been really tremendous for us to to be in sort of very regular communication with our advisory board to to draw from their collective knowledge, but also they are inspiring a lot of the questions that Chris and I have been um, chewing on as we go through these records.
0: Yeah, and we and we get a lot of engagement through through Twitter and our, and on our yeah. uh, website as well, where we have PhD students looking through what we're doing. We have kind of retired faculty we have tenured faculty but also we have genealogists looking at what we're doing um and kind of seeing where they can take their work as well so it's it's really kind of humbling to see this um and it's, it also can be tremendously overwhelming as well because we know how much promise is in this um and our advisory board really can keep us on the straight and narrow by by kind of suggesting those questions that maybe we need to be looking at And and exactly the same with our audiences online. So for for people listening, if if this is something that you're interested in, um, we are always open and willing to have those conversations because that engagement with with genealogists, with school teachers, with with academics uh, and, and other kind of audience groups is really, really important to what we're doing.
1: Thank you very much. I've been speaking to Chris and Mickey about their project, Mapping the Scottish Reformation, which you can learn more about by their website, mappingthescottishreformation.org, or by following them on social media, on Twitter, which is at MappingScotsRef. That's Mapping S-C-O-T-S-R-E-F. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.